Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. But you know, Joe makes sure that you know that Gorse has a really girly voice. So what does that right. sound like on the audiobooks? Does he really play that up? Because I've heard this guy has oh, like yeah. a million voices or something. Talks kind of like this. <laughs> I was imagining like Minnie Mouse or something when I read his dialogue. I don't even know what to think. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you're the baddest knight in the planet, but yet you have the voice of a precursor girl. That's excellent. <laughs> All right, what's up, breakers and burners? This is Steven and Ryan from Phantology, and we have a special guest. This time we have Mike from Mike's Book Reviews over on YouTube, and we are way excited to deliver to you this review of The Trouble with Peace by Joe Abercrombie, which came out little more than a week ago, not not too long ago, so still uh, fairly recent. Hopefully, we're kind of riding the, the hype wave here a little bit with this review. So, uh, so how's it going, guys? Uh, I, I really love this book. I'm assuming you guys had really positive opinions as well, and I think we're excited to get into this one. I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk about it, too. You didn't have me on your last review of A Little Hatred, so I'm excited to join you again. And anytime I get a chance to talk about Joe Abercrombie, I'm going to do it. So yeah, besides Red Country, I like everything that the guys wrote, wrote so far. Didn't you say, Mike, that uh, that Abercrombie and First Law was your favorite series? Uh, it is my favorite modern fantasy series. Yes, even over Stormlight Archive. I know that a lot of people get blown away by that. But uh, I think that those are such two very different series that it's kind of sad. But yes, my favorite modern fantasy series is the First Law. Okay, so if you've just randomly tuned into this episode and you have no idea what's going on, then there's a great uh, th- th- there's a great recommendation for you to go read the series. But maybe don't start with this one. I would say go back several books and start with his earlier series because one thing that you'll see in this book and in this series is he calls back to things that have happened in previous books like crazy, and you're going to miss stuff if you're not pretty well-versed in what's going on. But I think it's great because he does it so like low and under the radar that when you can pick up on it, there's so many little Easter eggs that make you feel smart. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like I I miss some of those. But thanks to our Discord, I've been able to pick up on a lot more of them than I would have normally. Yeah, a lot of people ask me all the time, hey, do I have to read the standalone books before I read the the, the sequel trilogy? And I'm like, well, you don't have to but it's it's kind of like the the cosmere if you read the whole thing you catch a lot more stuff that you wouldn't before especially with this book because i felt like there was a lot of name drops to uh, the heroes and best served cold in this one so i think that you should definitely also they're oh, yeah. awesome books so you should read them yes yeah do you do i have to it's more like do i get to yeah, exactly yeah, yes you can <laughs> yeah and not even just events but just like the way he writes he'll call back to the the quotes the way people are are speaking they're very very much like little Joeisms that get thrown in that you've seen in previous books. So the more you read, the more awesome it is because you're just picking up on more and more of these things and you feel more and more immersed into this this universe. 
So as we get started here, if you like what Phantology is doing, you can find more episodes online at www.phantologybooks.com. Uh, check out our, our social media at Phantology Books, hop on Discord and chat with us. There's, there's a few different ways to let us know that you like or don't like what we're doing. And uh, Mike, if you want to just tell people who you are and, and uh, where people can find you, and now is the time. Well, my name is Mike, and I am that thing that they've called a booktuber now all of a sudden. I, I never knew this was a thing like about a year and a half ago until I accidentally became one by just recording my thoughts on Wheel of Time as I was reading through that. But my channel on YouTube, obviously just search Mike's Book Reviews. It's really a channel where I encourage discussion because I feel like uh, we've gotten away from being able to talk about differences of opinion as a people, as a whole. So I'd like to encourage that, say, this is my opinion. I encourage you not only to disagree with me, but let's talk about it and we can still be pals afterwards if we disagree. And that's pretty much it. I review everything, fantasy, sci-fi, don't really touch much else, but uh, I feel like that's a nice little niche got going there. And the channel has seen like significant growth over the course this year, hitting about 25,000 here probably in October. Uh, subscribers. So, uh, hey, I'd love to see you there. Yeah, you always put out great, uh, great videos. I think my favorite was your reaction video to changes where you filmed yourself reading and then and then had some uh, some nice uh, facial expressions. And I some usually big don't moments. do the reaction thing unless the people really, really want me to do it. I'm real big about, as I say, giving the people what they want. Everyone wanted me to do that. And then even Jim Butcher saw it and said how much he enjoyed it. So that really was like, okay, that was a good decision on my behalf. <laughs> Hey, that's that's pretty cool. Anytime we get like an author retweet yeah, or anything, coolest. yeah, yeah, we're we're pumped for that. So, so, so speaking of big big reactions, I mean, I'm guessing a similar video towards the end of this book might have garnered some uh, some similar levels of excitement because the ending was pretty awesome. There was a ton going on. The uh, the, the whole last like 200 pages, I'm guessing 200 pages was nonstop reveals left and right, big things going on. This one was awesome, so so I'm excited to get into it. I should maybe say like now's the time. So so if you haven't read the book yet, we're talking spoilers here. So go back and, and read it. Read a little hatred. Read Abercrombie's other stuff. So to start off, let's talk about characters because I think even though there is a lot to like in all of Abercrombie's books and in terms of plot, in terms of themes, whatever, but I think at the, the heart of it, these are books about really great characters, characters that even though you might not necessarily like them as people, they are so well realized and so they have so much depth to them. And so I want to talk about these characters. So we have seven viewpoint characters, Sabine, Orso, Rika, Leo, Vic, Clover, and Broad. And let's go through and talk about them. I want to hear your guys' takes on them, pros, cons, whatever. And then I, at the end of this uh, little character segment, Let's go through and rank which characters are our favorite, like one to seven, uh, top to bottom. Sound good? Yeah, sure. Sounds good to me. Okay, so character number one, uh, my favorite character from the first book. I'm not going to spoil what might have changed with my rankings in this book, if at all. But my favorite character from Little Hatred was Sabine. And... This might have been because I probably had a minor, at least minor, like maybe larger than minor crush on Sabine because she's the most beautiful and composed woman and she's ruthless and gets her way. So Sabine in this book, I thought really had an opportunity to grow 
And what did you guys think? Like, was she able to? What directions did she go for you? Yeah, I think that uh, Savine certainly changed a lot as far as I think in the first book, the main driver of her character is, I think, her desire for power. And maybe uh, that's tied to Orso a lot. Whereas in this book, she still wants power, but now she realizes that she can't get it through Orso. So she's turning to alternative methods of getting that power. And I actually, my opinion of her decreased a little bit in this book. I, I don't like Same her. a little bit. Yeah. Maybe that's because of the actions she takes against other characters, specifically Orso. I think that I like Orso a lot more now than I did at the beginning. And her kind of going along with Leo's Rebellion was a little bit frustrating for me to read. But I mean... Joe Abercrombie pulled it off in such a good way that I can't even be mad at the end of the book. Uh, look, obviously, I love Sabine a lot in the first one because of who her dad is. Let's be honest. I mean, that's the whole reason oh, I'm yeah. interested in yep. that character from day one is because of who her dad is. Or sorry, her, her the dad that raised her. And I, I will say that there were two things in this book that kind of like got me down a little bit on her. First, she was really shitty with her dad in this one, with Glockta. And I didn't like that. I was like, that's my dude. Stop it. Stop talking to him like that. Was, yeah, that conversation that they had after the wedding. Uh, yeah, around he's that like, time, you that were was... my greatest achievement. And she's like, well, you suck. Anyway, I'm just like, I, I thought she was talking about like wheeling him off the edge of the... I was like, what are they doing here? But that was uh, rough. No, it was the whole thing with her acting as if she didn't really have a choice. This is her only option is to go along with this rebellion. Yo, she is more calculating than Cersei Lance. She makes Cersei Lancer look like a Disney princess in this. She is backroom dealing, wheeling and dealing the whole time. And it's all because she wants to be queen. Don't let it get twisted. She just wants to be queen. Don't, oh, well, I only have uh, this choice or else, you know, we all get burned for. No, yeah, you, uh -huh, you wanted uh -huh. this, please. Yeah, when she's spying on Isher and Leo and there's this great sequence where it takes you inside of her head and you get a, you get a look at what she's thinking and how quickly she goes through all of these things. It was almost like, she just went for it so quickly. She didn't consider a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I mean, she doesn't only double cross Orso when she goes along with Leo and Isher, but she also double crosses her dad, which is uh, equally something that at the first book, I would not have been able to see her doing that. So it was very surprising. And it's not like she really told Leo the whole truth either. I mean, is there anyone that she doesn't double cross here? Yeah, I mean, she's there with Stour making those those deals there uh, behind Leo's back too. So yeah, so she's like I said, she she makes Cersei look like a Disney princess by comparison. That's just how manipulating she is. In addition to that, you think from the first book and maybe like the first half of this one that she's just so calculating, so brilliant. She's never going to make mistakes, and all of every, everything she touches just turns to gold. And she is incredibly intelligent. But I feel like she makes some large blunders, one of them being sending Leo off to Styria on his own, thinking that he was going to secure this diplomatic tie with with uh, Jaffa. Like, what the heck? That that was doomed to fail from the very beginning. Yeah, I think that was very uncharacteristic of her because before then, like with Isher, she, she kind of sends Leo away when it comes down to making some of the hard decisions that she doesn't trust he can make on his own. So it was a little strange that he or she sent Leo off on his own to Styria. And of course, what happened is he ended up botching the deal with Jappo. 
while I was confused while she did it, I, I, I loved it because, you know, not only did it have the crossover with Best Reserve Cold going to the same brothel and stuff like that, but uh, I just like that, that that Leo and Orso are basically sitting standing there talking to each other. And they have no idea that it's each other. I don't want to jump the gun here, but that was just one of my favorite parts. And finally getting to see Japo was pretty cool. And he is, he kind of reminded me of Klaus from Umbrella Academy. I don't know if anybody's watched that. Just okay, yeah. uh-huh. completely quirky and weird. And I loved it. I thought it was really cool to see. Although I do hope that someday we get to see Mansa again. Yeah, will we see her? I, and uh, yeah, I guess I guess we might be jumping the gun yeah, a little I, bit. I'm but sorry, I do this with first law stuff. I get all over the place. Yeah, no, 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 no. You're you're fine, but but the whole Styrian conflict. I have some thoughts there. So let let's get into that once we kind of move past the, the character segment because because you're right. There, there's a whole lot to unpack in that, and and the whole thing in Cardati's and. The callback to Best of Cold and, and the characters all being there and not knowing. That was awesome. Love that scene. Okay, one more thing on Sabine. Is it possible that the baby could be Orso's and not Leo's? And if that was the case, like, would it matter? Do you guys think there's like any chance that this becomes a thing? It's Joe Abercrombie. It's most definitely Orso's baby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, it could be. In the book, everybody's very quick to put down especially Savine, when Leo asks her, is it even my baby? She's just very quick to put it down. Maybe uh-huh. a little bit too quick, you know, like uh-huh. maybe she's trying to eliminate the doubt, not only in Orso's mind, but in her mind as well. Yeah. They were literally together. I mean, she was with both of those guys within like days of each other. And I don't think they could just like go to the supermarket and get a, you know, get a, a DNA test or something like that. But still, yeah. The fact that I think she doesn't even want to consider because that loses any ability that she has. She obviously, she knows the truth about Orso and her relation, so she's like to pursue that power. So she thinks that Leo's her only avenue to power. So uh-huh. of course it's your baby, you fool. So that's my question, Mike. You say, yeah, they can't get a DNA test. So if the baby is Orso's, what does it matter? Or how are they ever going to know? I, I feel like if it's Orso's, that revelation needs to come with some meaning to it. And that's kind of where I start to scratch my head like, okay, it's Orso's, so what? I think it'll be kind of like a uh, Japo if you have you have no idea if it's a uh, Shivers or I can't even remember the guy that she, Rogant. I think it was Rogant. Like yeah, you yeah. don't even know. Joe's just going to let you just to try to decide that on your own until the until the the little scene here, right, where we do get that answer. Baez seems to be pretty keen in discerning those types of things, and the fact that he seemed interested in Savine uh, in these two books. Good point. Good point. Yeah, Baez does have, maybe one of his spells is a DNA test. <laughs> yeah. And fun fact, if if that is Orso's, so if you consider the fact that Jezal, King Jezal was a bastard, you consider the fact that Savine was a bastard, this baby would be a bastard's bastard's bastard. <laughs> That's the way that uh, Baez likes to keep it, I think, at least, and be able to be in control the whole time. He always has a plan B, you know, if you're not going to do what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to kick you out and put this other person in power. Mm-hmm. Baez is another character that uh, maybe l- l- later on, let's uh, let's talk some Baez. So on to Orso. And let me start off on Orso. Why did he not look at Savine towards the end and say, is this my child that I can see in your pregnant belly? Like, why Why was that not something that Orso immediately threw at her? I thought that was a little bit strange, but I mean, that's a minor thing for Orso. Overall, I loved Orso in this one. I thought he was awesome. I thought he learned very quickly, and he was very 
smart and also like the scene in at the end of the battle where he was strangely calm and wasn't worried about being crushed or anything like he he really seemed like a good king which is weird because no one seems like they're good at anything they're trying to do talk about subverting expectations i mean orso is set up in a way in the beginning that i didn't like him really much at all because of he's just kind of like a playboy uh doesn't really take any responsibility for himself there's a scene in the beginning where there's this like the very young 15 or 16 year old girl who's about to be hanged and he's thinking to myself well i could put an end to this and then he kind of gets distracted by something else and then here's the rope mm. snap in the background or come taut and there there goes her life but when when he's put in a position finally that something is demanded of him he rises to the occasion and really throws off the shadow of his his father i guess who is a mediocre king at best and the funny part is that he's really doing his best to become a good king and as good as he's tried things come up that really don't put him in a favorable light with both the nobility and the people so nobody nobody likes him for his actions I think that Orso in book one was kind of one of my least favorite of the new characters. And it's amazing because he was my favorite by the end of this one. And I think because of book one, I felt like Joe was just kind of repeating the same Giselle thing. I was like, okay, this is just, you know, Apple didn't fall far with the trees. He's just like Giselle, except he's not as good with a sword. But what is he good with? I'm like, he's good with a sword, but not, you know, the one you actually fight with, apparently. Uh, so I think that what I liked about this is, He's not the fighter that his dad was, but he appears to be way better at diplomacy because there's that scene in the tent before the battle with him and Leo, and he just absolutely owns the entire room with his diplomacy. And it just completely blew me away because I didn't expect it. I thought, well, he seems like he's got some ideas, but I think something that's going to bite this in the ass is you have all the grownups in this book telling all the kids, hey, don't trust Baez, and none of them listening. So uh, that's going uh-huh. to come back, and it's not going to be happy. So I think in that part, it may end the same way it ended with Giselle and Baez. We'll see. Yeah, how many times are we going to just disrespect Baez before the dude shows up and makes them pay? Because that was the lesson that we've learned from all of the other Abercrombie books. And repeatedly, like like you said, Mike, like all the grownups are saying, hey, don't mess with Baez. And here we have everyone messing with Baez and burning down Valentin Bulk offices and stealing stuff. And at some point, you know, the 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 shoe's gonna fall and then there's gonna be a reckoning to pay. That's here. why when everyone said, Oh, Baez has got to be the weaver, I'm like, he's not burning down and it's not like he needs to hide. He needs to like he'll just throw it right out there who he is. He isn't gonna hide anything. I was like, he's not burning down his own banks. Come on, that's stupid. I never suspected Baez was the weaver. Another okay, another thing that we'll have to talk about later as well so past orso who it sounds like we all really liked in this one after a rocky start to the series so ricka so ricka was interesting to me in this one i thought the first half of the book ricka i was like what is going on with this (laughs) character (laughs) and then halfway through after the whole thing with Kara happened and all of that and, and she showed up and she was crazy looking and then she was awesome after that yeah i mean so you have Orso and Leo who are a little bit different where they both kind of inherit their positions of power and people have totally different opinions of them. And they, they both kind of make themselves, I guess, something of themselves 
totally different from what like Orso's father. He's a mediocre king, not that not that great at diplomacy, and he kind of flips things around for himself. Whereas Leo, his mom is just this master strategist at battle, has done political maneuvering, including making a deal with the devil Baez himself to get themselves after his after Leo's grandpa's treason. Now Leo's back as the Lord Governor of England, and he doesn't really do well for himself. So he kind of goes downhill. And Rika, she's kind of on the same side as Leo, whereas she takes over after the dogman passes away and she's she's doing some political maneuvering herself some double crossing to make sure that she's on top whereas i think the dogman he was a really good guy but he was very straightforward he wasn't really a fan of treachery but in the oh, world yeah. of the first law, the dogman is like a craw he's like a straight edge yeah but yeah in the first lot you gotta you gotta be at least familiar with some sort of treachery if you want to move up in the world and Rick has got that. Now, while I always expect a lot of death in a Joe Abercrombie book, I'm not going to lie. I needed to take a moment when Dogman passed. It's like, because you're taking these originals from me here. It's, it's the two books in a row now. It's hurting. You know, you took this all from me. Now you took Dogman from me. So I guess that means our old, uh, what do they call them? Old, old sticks in this one. Uh, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, he's going to be long for this world. But as far as Ricka goes, Basically, I know what it's like to trip on acid now reading that chapter about this hasn't happened yet. <laughs> uh, very clearly, uh, Joe was maybe eating some mushrooms or something that night. But uh, <laughs> I, I liked her growth in that I didn't see the, the big twist with her at the end coming. I didn't. I thought she was just going to be you know, like her father and just kind of be like, let's just mind our business and let's just you know, hold a, a Ufrith here. That's good enough for us. But she, nah, she's ready to take it. But I'll say, and again, this might be some of my uh, original series, uh, original trilogy bias coming through here. Shivers is wonderful in this. I think this is the most humanizing we've gotten Shivers. What is this? It's like his seventh appearance in the series. And I think this is the most humanized he's been in the entire thing about how much he really cares for this girl. And uh-huh. I don't know why. I was scared when he was in the circle. I was scared. I was like, I know he's supposed to be like the now that Logan's apparently, you know, dead or gone or wherever. He's supposed to be the best in, in, in all of the circle of the world in the circle. But I was still, I, I kind of got scared because I know Joe, you know, but uh, I, I really like Shiver. I don't, I know we're talking about Rick here, but I really like Shivers in this book. Of course. A lot of good Northmen. I, I'm with you. Uh, I think both of you guys, uh, I know Ryan's mentioned this and it sounds like you agree, Mike, that, that Dogman funeral, that was emotional, man. Yeah, I, I don't know if I actually cried, but I was maybe like adjacent to crying. Like there were some really strong uh, emotional things there. And, Dogman was a great guy. Maybe maybe one of the best guys we've seen in, in all of the first Last law books. One out of that original group, yeah. 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 I mean, I mentioned that I feel I feel like Dogman had probably one of the best endings in the Joe Abercrombie universe so far. He he died in a time of relative peace and among family in his own bed. Yeah. Yeah, that's very yeah. rare in his world. <laughs> I mean, just in time, as soon as he and this is actually lying yeah. from the funeral. It's like a way that you can tell how good of a man someone was, how strong of a leader was. Look at what happens right after they die. And immediately after Dogman dies, everyone is trying to get whatever little piece of the puzzle they can. Yeah. So I'm going to give myself props because I saw the Rick of betrayal happening. I predicted, well, I mean, at least I like predicted enough to like throw out a theory on this and I'm kind of I, I'm I'm not opposed to throwing out theories which are typically wrong, but 
in this case, I did guess that Rika was the one that wrote the note to Orso about the betrayal that was happening. It made sense because of her connection with Orso. And it also noted that the writing was kind of childlike, which I just ended up deciding it was Rika. And so so I, I did see that one coming, but I thought it was awesome when it happened. I was way off. I thought it was Japo. I just keep wanting Stereo to get involved so bad that I think that that's what <laughs> kind of led me there. It's gotta, it's gotta be next book, right? Like it wasn't that big of a surprise to me that she ended up double crossing Leo. What was the biggest surprise was when Clover himself, yeah, that, yeah, orchestrated definitely the massacre of of Stowers, uh, of like him and his henchmen. They didn't kill Stower, but they certainly overthrew the balance of power in the North right then. And I just want to say I'm glad that Black Calder lived. That's all. Yeah. For now, I for mean, now. another yeah, another it's, guy it's, who it's, might first not. First of all, it's not going to be forever, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the Clover thing, I'm I'm with you, Ryan. I thought that was pretty surprising. So, is every book just going to end with Clover turning the tables on someone really dramatically? I keep waiting for it to be revealed that he's someone that we've heard of before. But you know, he actually get his. I can't recall. I put it in my notes somewhere, but the, we actually get his real name in this Jonas one. Jonas Steepfields I think is that yes. I was like I don't believe that I've heard that name before for some reason I kept thinking it was going to be one of those characters from the heroes or something like that but yeah that was very surprising me since you're in you know his head the whole time and it seems like he's building his own little group of, of named men here it seems like okay cool we're gonna have us another little band like this and that just I didn't see that coming at all props to Joe that's two books in a row now that the Joris chapter has been the one that got me it was it was pretty sad when he killed Wonderful. Yeah, oh, well, that's yeah, that's the worst. Yeah, by the end of a little hatred, I was done with Clover. I hated him for killing Wonderful, and now I'm back on the boat a little bit with Clover because he took down Stower. That's and Joe's Stower is someone who's who's pretty easy to to dislike. Joe takes the irredeemable character and redeems him, and takes the best character and makes him an absolute scumbag. He's just awesome at it. Do you guys think that? Jonas would have double crossed Stour if Stour hadn't made him kill Wonderful. Good question. He, yeah. he definitely thinks back to killing Wonderful after double crossing Stour. So, yeah, I mean, probably, even a little hatred. I mean, like his earliest chapters, all he can think is that this kid's a tit. So, I mean, I don't think he ever really wanted to support him. So, yeah, the fact that Stour was just such a jerk. Yeah, sure, I could see that. Okay, let's talk some Leo. Leo is dumb and he is bigoted <laughs> but he's also like the nicest guy he's leo's a crazy character um overall i'm not a huge leo fan but reading his chapters are always exciting you know something's gonna happen yeah i mentioned that leo kind of does the opposite thing of orso whereas orso you start off with a low opinion of him and your opinion of him increases as the story continues leo he does the opposite whereas you really or at least I was really cheering for him in the beginning when he's trying to put down this rebellion of Northman going against Stour in the circle. I was really cheering for Leo, but then by the end, just mistake after mistake, like you can just see him being manipulated by Isher and the members of the open council and shake your head at all of these actions he makes to the point where I, I agree. He, he's, he's kind of like, wears his heart on his sleeve type of guy. He just does what he thinks is the best and honorable, but he's just not a very smart person. And people say it about him a lot. And you can certainly see it in his decisions. And 
my opinion of him decreased. So that is pretty low towards the end of this book. You remember in the original trilogy, how at first everyone wanted to just like beat the hell out of Giselle because he was just such a prick and he got better yeah. over time. I feel like Leo is going uh-huh. the opposite direction. I, re- I really do. And I, I hate to just how easily he is manipulated in this. It's like this person can whisper in your ear. Yeah, we got to do that. The other person will whisper something the opposite. Yeah, we got to do that. He never seems to have an opinion of his own. He's so easily guided. And I don't think it's just because Savine's just so good at it. Because, I mean, Isher does it. Everybody, except everybody except Fenry, apparently. He listens to everybody except Fenry. I, I think what really, really hurt for me in this book is like, okay, this guy's got the the, the decks decked against him. History, family, history-wise. You know, he's he's from the family of a traitor. I mean, even Glockta in the first book, our Glockta, old Glockta, says, you know, hey, it don't matter. You're always just going to be the grandson of a traitor. So I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be his thing of trying to get out from underneath this family history and seeing him actually repeat that history. And you knew it. You just Your heart's just breaking the whole time it's happening because you're like, he just doesn't know how to say no. He really, I don't think that he wanted this. Is he really that mad because Orso kicked him out of the, 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 the open council? I mean, come on. He ain't ready to commit treason over that. It's just heartbreaking to see. I felt so bad for him. By the end, he's brutally maimed. I mean, he's missing a leg now. And one of his arms barely works. Is I'm really curious to see where his character is going to go. I never thought he was actually going to get hung. Because although Joe kills a lot of characters, he doesn't really kill off the POVs hardly oh, yeah. ever. So I, I didn't think, I, th- I figured Leo would survive. Who knows what's going to happen in the next book. But yeah, you, you feel terrible for him by the end. And by the end, he's standing there at the gallows. And all he can say is that he's sorry. And he didn't really I don't think he ever really had like all that strong of feelings against the the union in terms of like, oh, we need to do this rebellion. He was totally just goaded on. His only real opinion was like, hey, we should do a cavalry charge. I like doing those. Yeah, <laughs> he just wants to fight. Yeah. Yeah, that battle was a disaster. And you kind of knew that it would be when he wouldn't bring his mom with him or Durand with him, both people who were their strong skills were organizing and leading armies and and so, yeah, his perspective is after he makes bad decision after bad decision in that battle specifically was was pretty sad. But they still almost won the battle. <laughs> if Orso hadn't have gotten the reinforcements, they, they would have lost. I would say that battle was really great, though. It was one of my favorite in the series. And if you're just going off body count, it's one of the biggest in the series. So as much as I hated it, I always love seeing a good battle in the first law world. Yeah, and Joe writes, Abercrombie writes these fighting scenes so great. And I think it goes back to his background as a film editor of sorts. He does some freelance stuff. And a lot of these scenes, I'm thinking like, this is some stuff we've seen in like Daredevil, like these one shot, um, real exciting action scenes where you just like follow the character along for a really long extended period of time and see him just rack up the bodies like, it's it's some brutal stuff, but at the same time, it's like, wow, we're right there. With it seems them. like him following the person that killed the previous POV character seems to be like a kind of a, a thing he's getting known for now. I first saw it in The Heroes, yeah. and he did it again in Sharp Ends, and he does it twice in this book. And I, I've heard a lot of people be like, oh, it's just kind of a gimmick at this point. It's not as good as like, but I think it's kind of becoming like his thing, and you can't tell me it's not exciting. It's like, hey, oh, I, th- I think those are awesome. Like oh, they're dead. <laughs> it's like it's like within like you know, three pages, you're you're starting to get too attached to a character, and then boom, they're dead. I think it really it really contributes to the feeling of his book, where there are these people that are 
in other book in other fantasy books you kind of consider them to be like insignificant you have like these huge death tolls but you don't necessarily feel them so much in fantasy books whereas in joe's books you feel them as you follow these these small people the little people who as it just goes back and forth between the sides and you just feel like their excitement or their terror as they or their surprise as, as they die in various ways and it it contributes to that grim dark feel for me. I think it's him having just like I can't kill any of my main characters, so I've got to get some body count. I've got to satiate this bloodlust I have. Uh I, I can't believe people think it's gimmicky because I I think this is a brilliant and unique way that he has, like you said, Ryan, he is he is taken to writing these chapters so that you get a sense of these are the guys who are really being affected and it and it adds to that real dark tone, but in a real humanizing way. Okay, so let's talk some Vic. So I, I guess the four that we just talked about, I'm going to say, are our main POV characters. Now we have some th- three more that are somewhat minor main characters, Vic, Clover, and Broad. So let's go to Vic first. And in my notes next to Vic, it just says awesome, period, because she was so smart. I, maybe she's smarter than Savine, or at least like in a different way. Uh, she she's very deceitful. She can play off whatever is going on, and uh, and and she seems to always kind of do the best for herself. And she had several wins in this book. I really enjoyed the liar liar chapter where she came in and, and totally tricked. I mean, Leo's not hard to trick, but Savine as well was was quite impressive. Yeah, she's surprised when she sees that it's both of them, right? Or Leo and Savine because yeah. Savine knows her. But she just she still just instantly switches character to what she deems to be best to manipulate the situation. And she does it flawlessly, manipulating even so Savine didn't notice. She was one of my least favorite in the first book. But with this one, I thought I really like what he did with her. And it's very clear to see she paid attention to who her teacher is, Glockta. Because I felt like if Glockta had working legs... This is exactly the type of negotiator he would have been. Hmm, I can beat you with words. I can beat you by punching you in the face. And I can beat you by money. You know, any way I can do this, I can do it. I'm going to do that. And the stuff that she does in Styria, where she's just trying to get the votes, uh-huh. some, of the best, some of the best political stuff I've seen in modern fantasy. It's too good. You know, I, I actually didn't find her that likable of a character. I mean, I agree with you guys that she's just like super competent and like a really good spy. Are these characters likable though? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I I guess I didn't connect to her as much as I might have connected to like Orso or Rika for some reason. I don't know. It it was just Oh, she's still one of my least favorite. I'll agree with you there of this of this group. But I thought she was much improved in this book as compared to the first one. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe you need some background in the camps at England, Ryan, and that would help you connect to her. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past Joe to do that, and I'm sure it would be very depressing hey, I'd read it. to read. <laughs> I would too. That's that's saying something about Joe's writing, right? All right, so let's talk uh, Clover now. We already kind of jumped the gun on Clover a little bit. What uh, anything more to say other than what his big finale for me? Honestly, like there's not that much more to say about him although it's just the eye to see what's going on in stowers camp yeah exactly exactly and and to that end i don't know if i really love clover as a character that much because he just doesn't quite have the same level of characterization 
as these other ones, but also I think that's purposeful because we can't have seven main characters. Like some of them do have to be a little more minor. Yeah, I think that he does not fit the the mold of a normal Northman. So you kind of you get like a contrasting views of where Stour is just this bloodthirsty, power hungry guy. Jonas is just a very clever. You know, I'll switch sides if it means my survival because you can take your honor and end up in the mud and it's not going to do you any good. At least like if I switch sides, I'll still have my life to cling to. So he's very practical person. And it's kind of funny um, watching his interactions with Stour a little bit because the at the beginning of the books, Stour just kind of sets him to the side. You're just a coward. And at the end of the book, What's what's Stour saying to Jonas on the boat right before Jonas mutiny, I guess? He's like, you know, you're going to be well rewarded. He like finally recognizes that, I guess, Jonas is probably a lot smarter than he gives him credit for. But Jonas ultimately was a little too clever for Stour. I look at Jonas as kind of like a, a less likable version of Nakomo Kaska in that he'll uh, he'll switch sides for the right price or the right moment. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't bother him any. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I think that, the like I said, he was just kind of like the eyes to see what was going on in Stowers camp to kind of keep an eye on stuff like that. But again, the ending did surprise me. So I'm interested to see if he actually gives him, if Joe gives him a little more to do in the next one. But again, I do like that little that little band of, uh, of merry people he is putting together. I really enjoyed it. I and mean, especially how much he goes into that one girl that's how thin she can slice the cheese. That is uh-huh. such a weird thing to talk about. I just assumed that Joe was hungry while he was writing this. That's all I can do. There's so many little minor things. And if you look at the back of the book where he has like the the, the descriptions of all I the people. I about laugh, talk about the guy with a mustache uh-huh. and no beard and the guy with the beard uh-huh. and no mustache. <laughs> And and it does say that that character's description is is very good at slicing cheese thinly. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird how books this just bleak make you laugh so much. It's so weird, ain't it? It's the way he writes, like the the dark humor and the wit that he's able to just add into, like this the way that he structures sentences and the sarcasm that is present throughout everything. I think it's honestly, I mean, can I say it's my favorite? It's it's the highest quality writing out there in fantasy in terms of prose. I'm going to I'm going to say it. Yeah, I'm with you. And because yeah, I, I did an interview with John Gwynn. It's a guy that writes the faithful of the fallen. He talked about Joe Abercrombie and that and he said, what I like about Joe is you can read a sentence of one of his characters and know who that character is just by reading that sentence because of how well oh, yeah. he writes his characters distinctly. And it's there's one line in here where, where Vic is, is dealing with one of those politicians in Styria. And he was like, I was busy. Yeah, I'm sure you were. He's like, I was busy fucking. And I'm like. Anybody else writes that line, and I'm not laughing out loud. I'm like, who writes this dialogue? He writes it, and I can't stop laughing. It's so weird. Yeah, I was just finishing off a Stormlight Archive binge. I reread all of the books to get caught up for Rhythm of War, and then I switched back to Joe Abercrombie for a (laughs) little hatred. Shock to the system, isn't it? (laughs) Because I did the opposite way. (laughs) I I love Stormlight Archive, and uh, it might be like my favorite fantasy series, but. I think I love Joe's writing a lot more than Sanderson. I don't like his his stories quite as much as Sanderson and his world building, but I just love Joe's writing. That's why he's my guy. So our last character is Broad, Gunner Broad. Uh, another more minor guy here. He's he's mostly like 
the opposite of Clover. He's the boots on the ground guy for the Sabine and Rebellion camp. And there are a few minor things that he does, but I don't know. I, I don't care about Brad quite as much as these other guys. Yeah, he he gives me he just reminds me a lot of like a minor version of Logan or Shivers, where both of them have their moments where they're like, I'm going to be a better person, like I'm going to get out yeah. of this trouble. But then they, they find themselves just eager to get back in the punching people in the face, breaking noses, drawing blood. And so I, I feel like he was a little bit less. I, I think I think Joe's just already done it so well with other characters that broad wasn't that interesting for me to read there were times i forgot that that broad was in this book like we would go so long for, for without even hearing from him that i'd almost forgot he was in the book at times and i was like besides that he doesn't really want to do what he's doing but he doesn't know how to do anything else and he's going to keep doing whatever he has to do to keep his family fit oh and he wears glasses did you guys know he wears glasses uh-huh uh-huh i again i feel like this is just so we have the the breakers and burners thing progressing a little bit i i don't get a ton out of the character and like you said, we already did. You already convinced me that Shivers wasn't just, you know, Walmart Logan. I don't think you're going to do it a third time here. So, uh, yeah, I just look at him as a heavy. Okay, so in interest of time, let's just kind of quickly go through one to seven. Who do you guys think was uh, was your best in, in this one, we'll say? Or, you know, to, to the series at, to this point. Um, I'll, I'll give you mine to start off. So I'm going to say... Number one is now Orso. He is past Savine, who I'm still going to put it. I don't know. It, it might be Vic moving up to number two. Savine was, she didn't do very well in this book, to be honest. Like, a lot of mistakes, got overly ambitious. I'm going to say Vic number two, Savine number three. No, 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 no. R- Rika is going to be number two. Okay, final answer. Orso, Rika, Vic, Savine. Leo, I guess, and then Clover, and then Broad. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Orso is my number one. Rick is my number two. Savine's my number three. Then I'm gonna go with Jonas for my number four. Maybe Vic number five. Leo number six. Broad number seven. Uh, it seems like we all kind of agree on Orso and Rika here. Uh, I think that they bit, yeah. definitely had the most growth in this book and and the best turns to their character. Uh, Savine, while I didn't like some of the things she was doing, I mean, again, that's why I read this series. So of course she's going to to be up there. Leo, I like. I think uh, Ryan said earlier that it felt like you think that this guy's just a dummy, but you always know that's going to be an enjoyable chapter when you pop it over the page and you see it's a Leo chapter. It's always going to be entertaining, and I'm just interested to see where he can go with this in the condition that the guy's in now. And then again, I, I go with you with with Vic, and then kind of Jonas and and Broder's kind of interchangeable. Nice. Okay, so from characters, let's talk some uh, some big plot events. Some episodes we do a full thing of like the entire plot. For this one, I just want to cover some plot events that stuck with you guys, like favorite moments. We'll talk. Let's dedicate some time to talking about the final conflict and some of the reveals. But up to that, maybe like in the first two parts, what were some of your favorite parts? Um, I, I have a few. But uh, I, I don't know, Mike, what, what, what stuck out to you at this beginning of the book? I read this so fast. I'm trying to remember what was in part one and two. Uh, I, I think I liked at the beginning just that, you know, in the first one, it was like this big reveal whenever the original trilogy characters would come back. And it was like this big, cool moment. And this one, boom, they're just there right from the beginning. And you're seeing that uh-huh. Orso has to just kind of get thrust into this. And he's still, 
remember like when Giselle had his first close council meeting and he was thinking he was going to be like in charge and he got slapped down real quick. Uh, with this, I think that Orso is going to have to learn that lesson. It's just going to be slower because he, even they're telling him, you know, hey, it's just politics. And he's like, why? Why can't we change things? I'm like, oh, you sweet, sweet, sweet summer child. Uh, I Really, I think it's just like all the posturing between everybody and seeing that, that Sabine is in a much different place now than where she was. And then their whole, uh, you know, Fenry and, and, and Artie basically still kind of running the kingdom behind the scenes there was was really cool making that match because it, it made sense right it made perfect sense so i think in the first two actually really it's just all the all the politic and all the political posturing and again like i said getting to see things like vitari again getting to see things like shanked again i love all the, i love best served cold that is such a great book so anytime you got callbacks to that book i'm gonna be really really into it so uh yeah i think it's just i don't want to say just all of the nostalgic kickbacks and whatnot because i think that he really does a good job of putting these new characters up front and the old characters are kind of passing the torch. I, I appreciate that he could do that. I do feel like it's a waste of resources not using Glockton more than he's using them, but we got one book left. But I, I think, yeah, before all the uh, the shit really hits the fan, as you would say, really just him setting the board up until uh, the, the, the big explosion. I, Mike, I'm getting that you liked Glockta. He he seems to be one of your favorite characters. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, yeah, that's my guy. I mean, I think that, that you can't think of another character in modern fantasy that is anything like that. I, I think that's what made this series stand out to me when I first read it. I was like, who is going to make the only guy that kind of gets a happy ending in the story? You know, the the cripple who who tortures people. You know, so uh, uh-huh. seeing him again, I was excited, and then I was like, "He's really." I mean, all the all of the original trilogy characters were basically cameos in this one. I mean, even Baez only has like that one big scene. While I want to say I understand he has to pass a torch, it is kind of a struggle for me at times to be like, "Okay, but you know, you got some of those greatest hits, Joe. Let's use them." I, I don't think this is obviously the last that we're going to see of a former Arch Lecter Galacta. Okay, so a lot to unpack there. Let's let's talk Styria. Now, so Ryan, what did you think of uh, of Syria being introduced into the mix? It was right away with Vic and and the politicking there, and then again when we go back to Cardati's and how awesome that chapter was. Like we said, with with Leo and Orso both being there, not recognizing, getting to see Japo for the first time, and also friendly being there. Uh, cameo. I actually didn't notice friendly. So the first Styria part where Vic is um, wheeling and dealing, getting uh, some of the some of the scenes kind of bled together a little bit for me. But I at first I, I was like, what? It, Shanked is just gonna like let her like punch out his knee and then like save it. And then and then I was thinking about it and I was like, that couldn't have been Shanked. And I was like, this must have been a setup by Vic. Yeah, I think a seasoned Abercrombie writer knew that that wasn't going to be the case. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I loved the Cardotti's House of Leisure chapter. That was phenomenal. And you see like Bremer yeah. Dan Forrest. <laughs> uh-huh. He's like, oh, I hate this place. <laughs> They're like, you want a drink? And he's like, no, <laughs> I don't want a drink. I'm going to keep my wits about me this time. And meeting Jappo. I think that it strongly hints that Jappo is the son of Shivers and not Duke Rogant because the way he's described, I think, I, I don't remember whether it was Leo or Orso looking at him, but they're like, he looks a lot more like a Northman than and somebody here. The, the, the shiny black hair. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was Orso because he took his mask off for Orso's visit oh. and he says he's more pale. 
than than uh, than a Styrian would look. And so I think that's so awesome that Shivers' son could be like this king over in uh, Styria, like this person to watch out for. Think think Shivers will ever meet him. Think we'll ever have a a father son. And and I I'm sure they would never know, but as the reader, you would know. They won't have any idea, but yeah. Do you think he'll meet up with uh, Monza at some point? I mean, he's always twisting that ruby oh, yeah. ring that he got from her when she set him free. And so, I mean, I'm sure he thinks a lot about his time in Styria. And I mean, I don't know, maybe the Union and the North are going to like have to repel an assault from Styria. Because the way that Jappo leaves things with Orso, Orso's like, how do I know if you can trust me? And Jappo's like, well, you won't know until you don't get a knife uh-huh. in the back from me or you do get a knife in the back from me well they've already lost like three wars with Styria. i don't think yeah. they're gonna try another one are they so he didn't get a knife in the back it could have been an opportunity for Styria to come in they never did but i mean now they're pretty weakened i mean a lot of fighting men in the north died and a lot of union soldiers died repelling the assault and we know that the Union is very heavily in debt to Valentin Bulk, more so now because of this war. So things things are teetering a bit. I think the stability in the Union is is not as sure as Baez might. Oh want yeah, it and to be. and Weaver Pike, Weaver Pike is ready to move his guys in. And Sulfur is always there trying to offer a deal to anybody who'll listen. He's always offering that credit, ain't he? Mm-hmm. Okay, speaking of sulfur, that that's a moment that we, Dude, we have to talk about. In this, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, the first little people chapter where the train, the steam engine explodes and you on everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Orso is about to be killed. Sulfur goes full on eater and tears through everyone. I mean, first of all, the way that that chapter was structured, where you had the narrative stopped where it said then like the world stopped or something exploded. World exploded, yeah. And then you got this through everyone's eyes and up until that event and the, t- the tension was building. Just like, okay, enough already. Just tell me what, what's happened here. I need to know. And then when you finally do see all of the carnage and, and then Sulphur saves Orso, that was a top chapter in the book for sure. All doubts about him being an eater were gone. Not that like after he says he has a very specific diet, you really were in any doubt i thought either orso or therese was going to be like the big like crazy shocking kill right there but uh hey therese gets a happy ending by the way she finally gets to be back with uh with her lover now that glock is gone <laughs> yeah she she does get a happy ending i i don't know if it's That's deserved or not scary, so you notice it when it happens <laughs> yeah but i mean they're they're within Jappo's grasp That's you know true uh, Orso kind of delivered them into his hands, so Chapo could just be like, "Oh, Ooh. hey, I got your mom. I got hey, your by sister." By the way, did Gisal know Carlo Dan Eider? Because it's weird that he has a daughter named Carlo, right? Unless that's a unless that's just like a really common name in this land. He also has a daughter named Cathal, which seems strange. Now we're gonna start going down a rabbit hole. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm wrecking your your, your plan. Gisal <laughs> wasn't. He wasn't into Zgaska, which is where Carlot was. And then he wasn't in Styria after she left. He was the king by the time of Red Country, so yeah. And also, I'm pretty sure that Glockta made Therese promise to have four children for the kingdom, and only three have been mentioned. I mean, Savine doesn't count as hers, so 
I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's another secret child lurking somewhere. Well, it's just all. I mean, we saw him last time we saw him. Like before the before this sequel trilogy, he was at Cardati, so I'm sure he's got some nice little. The bastard's got some bastards running around somewhere. You know he does. <laughs> I mean, that's why she probably sent away her um, her friend. I forget her friend's name, but because she didn't want her to be used against herself anymore. Uh, possible. She was like, I, I can't stand. <laughs> I can't stand Jazal anymore. So I'm going to have to send my lover away or risk Galacta's wrath. Yeah. What else? Okay, so let, let's talk about the, the the politicking. It got to a, a head during the Wetterland trial when Leo stands up and makes a fool out of himself and is thrown out by Gost and Orso thinks he's going to make this nice move and Isher totally outsmarts him. I thought this set up the action for the rest of the book really well. The, it put the characters at odds to the point where at the very end of the book, when they actually were, I mean, they weren't physically fighting, but they were once again trying to outsmart each other. Of course, Orso is going to take the cake there. And also with Gost throwing um, Leo out of, of the council chamber. That was fun to see. How awesome is it that Gorst, all these years later, he's still like the baddest knight in the planet. That's, that's just so awesome to me. Him and Shivers, right? The The two guys from the heroes and in other books that they're still the top dogs pretty much in terms of fighting and you know it's those two are going to meet up eventually it's just going it's got to happen i don't know he's like oh i never heard of him and stuff like that but yeah yeah thinking you know we never got that shivers logan fight so i still think we're going to get this one somehow yeah and they're both in like their 50s right and it's even mentioned that i don't i forget whose viewpoint it was but they said like Bremer, even in his 50s, is still practicing uh-huh. swords three hours uh-huh. a day or something crazy like that. You know, he, he's not going to die. Wait, I'm curious. <laughs> I don't listen to audiobooks, but you know, Joe makes sure that you know that Gorse has a really girly voice. So, what does that right. sound like on the audiobooks? Does he really play that up? Because I've heard this guy has oh, like yeah. a million voices or something. Yeah. He talks <laughs> kind of like this. I was imagining like Minnie Mouse or something when I read his dialogue. I don't even know what to think. So, uh-huh, uh-huh. so you're the baddest knight in the planet, but yet you have the voice of a prepubescent girl. That's excellent. <laughs> Mike, you need to check out the audiobook and just yeah, at least listen to a sample of it because Stephen Pacey, I think, is my favorite audiobook narrator. He he does such an amazing job. Just listen to Glockta talk. It's it's amazing. I've listened to the samples of Glockta talk, and one yeah. thing that I said that I do here with me, it's not a uh, I'm not a, a against audiobook or something. It's just I have like crazy, no problem reading, but listening ADD. It comes with it comes when having kids, you start learning how to block out noises, and you just can't turn <laughs> it off. So I, I have a hard time listening. But I've had people, hey, listen to this, just see what you think. And what I liked what he did with Glockta is when he was actually speaking. You know, he'd have to lift because he doesn't have any teeth. But when he's uh-huh. actually thinking, his voice is normal. I thought that was a really neat take on uh-huh. it. So uh, I'm amazed this guy doesn't get more work as, as much as people just carry on about him. I think he's also an actor. So maybe he only agrees to do Abercrombie books. Or I, I, I don't know. I haven't heard him narrate anything else. If I was an author and I had a book that needed to be narrated, I would try and get Stephen Pacey. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. I feel like I know the story so well now. I should probably just try to listen to those. Yeah, yeah. Do, do it on your reread or something because you don't have to uh, pay attention to every word. Okay, so we we already talked about the Dogman funeral, so I, th- I think we can pass over that event. I think that kind of takes us through the majority 
of parts one and two events. So let's go into the last part and talk the final conflict. So there were, there's obviously a lot here, right? The action was pretty much nonstop over the last at least 150 to 200 pages. For me, the liar, liar chapter really stood out um, in, in the lead up. And then obviously the whole fight, uh, the revelation that Rika was taking Carlian and that, and then finally like the shutdown between Leo getting tricked by Orso, the cavalry arriving at the right part, the whole battle falling apart and the little people chapter there. Like there's so much here to like, like so much good in this terrible stuff that's happening. I think for me, one of the biggest things is, and this was obviously going back to the first, but first it was the whole prophecy thing. Cause it's so funny when people say, Hey Mike, what sell me on first law? And I say, Hey, it's really, if you like a song of ice and fire, but you want it without the dragons, without the prophecies, I think you'd like first law. And then of course this first uh-huh. book lays down a prophecy, which <laughs> I think you want to talk about a little later, the whole owl thing. But, uh, who was the weaver was obviously a big question that had left in the first one. And when Galactia just all of a sudden up and resigns, I said, holy shit, he's the weaver, isn't he? I thought for sure, because I think they'd actually even mentioned that it was a bald guy one time. So I'm thinking he made a point to reference how he was just so bald now. So I I, I don't know. I, I That really kind of threw me for a loop at the very, very end. And that's the, probably the biggest thing for me is that Pike, a, a character, Salem freaking ruse from the very first torture scene, the very first book yeah. is like this big time player now, one of the biggest. And much like Vic, I think he learned from the master, right? They both served Glockta. They didn't serve the Union. They both served mm-hmm, Glockta. Mm-hmm. And that's just the biggest revelation in this book for me. There were a few hints and a little hatred that looking back, it's like, oh yeah, it totally works because uh, Malmer, I think was was the dude's name, that the head breaker was about to say something and then and then Pike came in and stopped Vic's interrogation. But what he did say, it was like, oh, the Weaver was there, but he never saw his face. And so like, obviously, if you'd seen Pike's face, you know who he is. Um, it, it fits. It, it was a great reveal. Yeah, and sorry, did you mention when he talks to Vic and he says something about like, I know since you were in the camps, I, I know kind of what uh-huh. you experienced. And so I, I know you pretty well. He says that at the beginning um, or maybe towards the middle of book one. And so you're kind of thinking, oh, like, what did he mean there? But then by the end, now now you realize what he was hinting at. And isn't it so ominous that the book ends with the Valentin bulk, the new office, the rebuilt office in Valbeck going up in flames. Like eventually Baez is not going to stand for this. Yeah. I finished the first trilogy. Here's the thing. When I first read that first trilogy, I wasn't used to grim dark. So that ending completely kicked my ass. I'd never seen a thing where basically the bad guy wins. Right. I had never seen that before. And I was like, at the time, again, like I said, I was just, I was young and innocent at this point. And I said, I, I, I don't want to read these standalones if it isn't going to be about Baez getting his. And now here we are, one book away from the end of the sequel trilogy. And I'm like, I can't wait till Baez comes and kicks you guys' ass. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're legitimately cheering for, for Baez? Like, what if no, Baez loses I, at the end? I think it's just any time I'm going to get some of those original trilogy characters, I, I'm there for it. But I, I have some thoughts about Baez, if you want to talk about that later or now or whatever. Let's do it. Let's talk about Baez. So where the heck is Baez? We know he's off in the West somewhere, like doing something in the far country. I think some of the events of Red Country might hint at what he might be doing. Uh, but I think that the, he, Mitch, Joe has name dropped Connell three or four times now in this series. Yeah. And that is the third of the Magi. 
And last known location was the Great Western Library. And I think even Yoru Sulfur says in this, he's got business out west. And he actually drops uh-huh. the name Colonial again. So I think we're finally going to see some resolution. Because I believe that's like one of the only magi we don't know about what's going on with them. We don't even know what the power, what, what their power is. So I think that that's what he's doing. And we're going to, if we don't get like a answer for it in this book, if it happens off the page, maybe we'll see it in like a, a novella or something like that. I don't know, or, or Sharp Ends kind of sequel. I guess you say, yeah. Also, also Zacchaeus, right? I think Zacchaeus is mentioned by heard, name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is that is that his sister call, or like is it Colonel the sister? I don't remember. Man, it's been too long. Yeah, the whole all, all of the Magi is is maybe not as clear for me. Like that, yes, that is defined, but it's never the focus of the story at all. Which is interesting since they drive so much of the things behind the events. Um, we know, obviously, in Red Country, there's the whole thing with what, what the old empire out there that's being reformed, and that hasn't really been a thing at all in this book yet. We know Bize is out west, so like maybe that's what he's busy with. But when's he coming back? Why? Why is this more important than saving the Union? He loves the Union, kind that's of. Probably, it's got to be something serious for him to be sitting out while all this is going on, and while Valet and Balk is burning. That just to me seems like. That yeah, seems like it would take some priority, but it also looks like Yoru Sulfur can take care of shit you know, if he needs to, if he if thinks that you need to roll up the sleeves and get some work done. The thing about Baez is I don't want Baez to win, but right now he's kind of on the side of Orso and I guess Savine and Leo now that they're kind of on Orso's side. Who knows? So I don't want Orso to lose. I wonder if they're there's going to be a conflict that comes to head between Orso and Baez. Do you think there's any chance that Baez doesn't win? Like, could Baez be killed? Or to his power taken from him or something as a government of the people rises up or something like this? Any chance we get that? I mean, if you'd asked me this before book one, I said, yeah. But now knowing that I've got one book left, I don't see how. One of my biggest disappointments is because I'm a glowing review for this book. Don't get me wrong. But there is a gripe that I have about it. And it's that I felt like Giselle died under some really mysterious circumstances, and it is not addressed once by anyone in this. I was just like, so you really just buy that this guy who was just fine last night just died uh-huh. of natural causes with Baez sitting right next to him. So I, maybe they're yeah. all just too scared because of Baez. I just thought we'd get something about that. People care about Giselle 0%. It, Does that, that mean? That's, that's sad. <laughs> oh, man. No, yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about that. I guess I care about Jazal zero percent, maybe, but yeah, I mean, it was it was sad that he died. I, I liked him by the end, but I was fine with Orso just taking over. Everybody knows that Baez had something to do with that, or at least all the readers know. Who knows what Orso thinks? I'm sure he probably doesn't suspect Baez, does he? I don't think he. I think back being to the little hatred. Orso didn't even believe he actually was Baez. He thought it was just some dude. Remember, remember when uh-huh. Giselle tells him that and he's like, "What you're saying? That guy actually is Baez." I think he's still kind of skeptical about it. Never, and no one listens to Fenry at all ever, even though she seems to be the only intelligent one left. But no one listens to her. She's just as much as Giselle saying, "Don't trust him," and they're just like, "Whatever." Same so. with Black Calder, right? Black Calder delivers the same message, and no one cares. Uh, what I love about Calder in this, where he's like, you know, whenever you want to get shit back under control, let me know. And he's again, he seems like the grown up in the room there for sure. So I'm glad that he's oh, up in the hills or up in the mountains or whatever when all this and Carleon was going on. 
So speaking of bias and speculation into the next book, The Owl, right? The Owl from the Prophecy that Mike promised us we wouldn't have in First Law. We do have an Age of Madness trilogy. So who's the owl? I mean, is it just bias? Like, is is it that straightforward? The rest of the prophecy was fairly straightforward. I thought it was going to be Rika because the owl thing, like the owl's eyes kind of thing. But I don't even know if she's got that power anymore. She's just using that to her political yeah, advantage yeah. now at this point. But every, I want to think that Baez is behind everything always So because I'm not getting tricked like I did in that first trilogy, you know. So uh, I don't see how it couldn't be. I can't think of anyone else, unless it's uh, the big twist is that it's Glockta, which I really think that that's just stretching at this point. The other theory that I've seen from our Discord is that the owl represents like a group of the people. I think I kind of already referenced this, like the breakers and burners coming together and forming some kind of parliament and and this like overthrowing Baez. And to get this to work, we'd also have to have maybe like Pharaoh coming back into the picture and getting revenge on the bald pink. I, I think it could go in that direction. I'm not sure that it will. It seems like Baez is just going to win again. I, would, I Frankly, I'd be surprised if he doesn't. I said being one book away from the end, I, I do. I'm like, wow, Baez is going to get off again, Amy. <laughs> I mean, we haven't seen the last of Rika. She's she's consolidated power in the North. Well, actually, she hasn't because there's still Black Calder out there. But, I mean, she, she has a lot of story left. Maybe she takes back England from the Union. Maybe All that, I'll say that is I hope this last book is like 700 pages because, like I said, I, bro- I blew through this in a couple of days. Like, I always go through a Joe Abercrombie book really fast. That's not nothing new, but I was still, I was just like, there is so much that needs to be wrapped up, not only from this, but lingering stuff from the first series still. That I'm like, that last book needs to be a big old fat boy. And the good news is it's already written and it should come out this time. Next year, right? He wrote the whole trilogy together. Awesome. We don't have to wait too long. George R.R. Martin. He plans ahead. It's amazing how that <laughs> It is possible, apparently. <laughs> okay, so uh, what do we do? We think Styria is going to get involved. I mean, yes is the answer to that, but I guess maybe they'll just like pop in there and Batari and Shanked will become involved when they see an opportunity. I guess in the third book, like maybe what I'm asking is, uh, at large, like I, we just see a continuation of the same type of conflict, right? Where people are jumping in when they see gains to be had and people are backstabbing like crazy. Like that's probably not too hard to predict. Uh, I don't think that they're going to actually get, I actually feel like this is maybe him setting up future events just because I feel like there's one book left. And I say that because I go, I think back to where I was after, before they were hanged and before I read last Iron Man Kings, I, I would probably have been like, yeah, he can't do this. this. And he did, he did it. So I, he probably can. I just, I think it's just, it's just me wanting stereo to get involved just because I love best serve cold so much. But uh, I, what I actually want for a, another series, not to, to sidetrack here is we hear all the time about these lost wars that they have with stereo. I would love to see like a bridge prequel series about those characters in the 30 oh, yeah. years between these two series. What the hell happened and how did monster just come repeatedly whip the power of the world's ass just so handily. I'd love to see that. But again, I, I know that's probably just me wanting more monster. I don't know. I, I, I think Abercrombie certainly set up a lot of this conflict already with the meeting with Japo and, Shiloh and Vitari, them kind of fighting over Westport a little bit, at least politically, and negotiating with about Sapani, all of these sorts of things. 
but I don't know. It would seem a little bit rushed to take care of this whole Styria union conflict in a single book. I can see that. But at the same time, I feel like trouble with peace went further than I was expecting it to go. Oh, I didn't expect a civil war at all. No way. Yeah, but it totally worked, right? Because the action moves along so quickly that you can fit all those things in. I I, I feel like we could get an entire resolution to all of these dangling threads. The thing for me is, as far as like kind of going back to will Baez win or not, I feel if Baez doesn't win, that's Abercrombie saying that he's done writing First Law books. Because without Baez, unless he does something equally sinister, which he totally could, but without Baez looming in the background, I feel like Abercrombie's saying I'm done and he's going to start writing something else. So if anyone knows if Abercrombie said if he's writing more or not after this, I'm going to say the answer to that question will tell you if Baez is going to win or not. That's a good point. I mean, I, I hope he continues this world, but I understand if he wants to work on other things. Like, I mean, he did the Shattered Sea between these two series. So I, I'm hoping that he does continue this world, obviously, because there's still so much. And now he's he's really just branched out with this newer generation that I feel like you could just keep these, these characters going. But I'm sure he'll use some kind of time jump or, or a different location. Maybe he'll finally give us something in the West. You know, who knows? There's a lot of room in the world to to explore more. Yeah, West. Um, are we ever going to know what the heck happened like down in Gurkle? Uh, are we ever going to explore Thond more, which was uh, introduced a little bit in Sharpens? There, there's a lot here. The, the world is pretty large, and we haven't seen all that much of it. So please, Joe, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe, if you're listening and you've got this far, uh, we're, we're big fans and we'll read anything you write. Even a children's book. Yeah. Uh, so, so any last thoughts uh, fr- from you guys to, to close up this one? I think overall we are uh, very positive on the book and we are very much looking forward to the wisdom with, with the wisdom of crowds renamed title. It was originally the, the beautiful machine. Is that right? Big machine. You're a beautiful machine or big machine. Something like that. Something yeah. Like, yeah. I have no idea. Like before I could see, I, I could see why this one was being called trouble peace, but the wisdom of crowds, I have no idea what that's supposed to be. seems like a mob. I guess what I'd like to you know. see is what is, is Rika satisfied just like ruling the North or is she planning to like take over the world? That's, that's because I really did not see, didn't really get power hungry from her. So I really don't, know what her end game is there so i think that's probably the one of the more confusing things for me but again i think that the union's more weakened now than they've ever been you know they had to rely on reinforcements just to survive this battle with england so she could have boats already in the water right now on the way there by the time the next yeah. book starts if she plans to do that or like you said maybe Joppo's like hey this is the perfect opportunity to take over the world a lot of ways this one could go for Rika, it seems like her main motivation was revenge against Stour, and now that that's sated somewhat, it seems like, yeah, she can just live out the rest of her days in peace up north. Of course, that's not going to happen. Yeah. When does that ever happen with a, with a, with a yeah. king up north? Yeah. yeah, when does that ever happen? <laughs> I like what you're saying about wisdom of crowds, Ryan, like mob mentality. It's obviously, uh, you know, trouble with peace is saying, well, uh, it's a bit of a backhanded way to describe peace. I think this is the same way with this next title crowds are obviously not all that wise and i think we do have some mobs brewing under pike's rule here with the breakers and burners that's probably going to be like the driving force for most of the conflict i would think no that's a good point the great change obviously that's why i thought that the, the way the book ended i would have think the third book was going to be called the great change that would have made 
the most yeah. the most sense to me. But no, I like I like what Ryan's coming through with that one. That sounds like a good idea. I because he hasn't built up these breakers and burners things for two books. And by the way, who the hell is the judge? Did anybody know that? I keep expecting that to be revealed as like some character we know too. Do you really think that's a new character? She's crazy and she has red hair. It's Carla. I, see, I was like, well, is, this can't be Vitari because we, we we saw Vitari in this book. I, that's only the redhead I could think of. I think she's too old to be uh, Eider, so who knows? I, I don't know. Do we know who she is? Yeah, I mean, the only hint we have about her past is that she, she was called the judge because when, like, two whores had a fight or whatever, they were brought to her and she would kind of act as the, the judge in solving their dispute. Other than that, I don't know that we got any. And Zuri's brothers are eaters, right? I mean, he talks about their their, their perfect, clean white teeth like all the time. Yeah, there were some uh, people on Discord talking about that. It it makes sense. We we haven't seen him unveil this power yet. I didn't have it. A friend, uh, someone on the Discord got a UK version of the book, and it has a short story in it at the end. I didn't get in mine, Uh, but apparently there's some kind of revelation about a new. Like they asked this person what kind of eater are you? And they say the new kind. And I'm like, okay, well that's gotta be going somewhere. But I just feel like it was, if it was something that was going to be in the next book, he wouldn't have made it a short story. He would have actually had that in the story, but who knows? Who knows? I just feel like he set up her brothers too much for this in Zuri to just be nothing. Oh man, I gotta, I gotta get onto Reddit right now and find out where I can read this new story. I want to know what this is. (laughs) All right. Last word for me is I think a lot of times with second books of trilogies, I struggle because it seems like the authors are really just trying to get you towards the cool ending of the books that they've planned out. And the second book, like the plot will drag on a little bit and, and the characters are kind of stagnant, but there was like zero of that here because the conflict in this book alone was good enough to be the conclusion to the whole trilogy. And the characters were moving so much. Like it's, it's very clear how well Joe planned this thing. Um, and I, I thought, uh, I hope authors kind of take this as a blueprint for how to make a trilogy, uh, make every single book like really streamlined through and, and have a big plot. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised that this middle book had pretty much a beginning, middle and end. I was really, I mean, obviously you have your unanswered questions, but it, in most books, the whole war between them would not have ended in this book. It would have carried over into the, to the next oh, yeah. book. Yeah. And I mean, I think it says something about the book that we still don't know where he's going with book three, right? It, it's not like a second book that's really its sole purpose is just to set up the conflict for the third book because we don't know exactly which so what the Joe conflict is. So Joe us to say this is now going to be a five book trilogy. Five book trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Do the Brent Weeks. This is going to be uh, this is my five book trilogy. Yeah, we're we're on board for that. <laughs> All right, thanks uh thanks so much Mike for for joining Phantology. If you want to watch some great YouTube booktube videos uh check out mike's channel please that's mike's book reviews what are you reading uh right now mike like uh, anything people can get excited for uh i am reading the uh, blood and bone by john gwynn i don't know if people just don't know about this guy i feel like john gwynn is like the biggest kept secret in modern fantasy right now this is the second series by him i've read i've already read faithful from the fall and this is a blood and bone john gwynn is he's just awesome everything that you kind of look for Modern fantasy, but I do want to say not only thank you for letting me come back on here with you, and I'd love to anytime you guys want to talk about anything, I'd love to be on. But I want to thank you for your Lycanius reviews because I just finished Lycanius, and I'm not gonna lie, 
there was a lot. I was like, what in the hell is going on? I felt like you guys cleared <laughs> up a lot of stuff and you also had a lot of the same gripes that I had of other people. I was like, am I a dummy? Am I maybe just not understanding some of this stuff? And I think there's part of that, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But I felt uh -huh. like you guys had a lot of the same gripes that I did. So I really appreciated uh, that, that those three podcasts that you guys did. And I know that was when you guys were really brand new, but I've been kind of yeah. working on my back catalog and everything I've read. And I'm doing the Red Rising stuff right now, which is a series I absolutely, oh, nice. I absolutely adore, as you can see with my coffee mug here. I'm big, big Red, Red Rising fan. So uh, oh, yeah, nice. guys, I, I, I love your back catalog and everything you guys have done up to here. And anytime you guys need me, please reach out. I would love to. Hey, love the endorsement for the early episodes. Those were uh, those were a little less polished. Questionable as to how much polish there is now but the on pathology, but it's uh, <laughs> important because again, like Hanius is like, isn't it tough to be a critic of fantasy books? Because man, if you say that you don't like something, someone is coming after you with a hundred reasons why that you should like it. Obviously, a lot of us were either doing Stormlight rereads or catching up before the new book comes out. I made the mistake today of putting out my review, out my review for uh, uh, Oathbringer and saying that I have gave three glowing reviews of these books. And all I said in this one is that I just I don't like the Lyft character. And you would have thought that I just said I don't like Baby Jesus the way that I got the reactions that I got. Oh, man. Yeah. It was like people were ready to fight. And I was like, I've just said that he's got like. 400 amazing characters in this book. And I say, I don't like one and I, well, you just don't get it. And I'm just like, wow, man. So yeah, I, I understand those criticisms very, very well. I'm actually with you. I don't, I don't like Lyft either. I, I don't think it's, I don't think she's funny. She feels like she's in the wrong series. She should be in maybe Mistborn, most likely the, what is it? Skyward. I think that she fits like she should be in Skyward. That's yeah, just, yeah. Sorry, you can't have this crazy, awesome political discussion and then talk about Dalinar's butt for two paragraphs. You just can't do that to me. <laughs> I expect more from Sanderson. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, I, I'm with you. But yeah, everyone's a critic, especially on the internet. I just started reading those preview chapters, and I see that you guys have done podcasts for every one of those preview chapters. So I'm, I'm listening to those slowly as well. So Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're putting out weekly uh, reviews of those. We're way, we're way hyped. I actually just pre-ordered the book today uh ryan and i did so uh we're gonna get our numbered copies sure. looking forward to that yeah i got the the one where you do get the virtual event that he's gonna have on release night and uh you get the book signed and stamped and it just says swag it doesn't tell you what it is so i'm hoping it's that bridge four poster that he gave those people with the the kickstarter for the the, the leather bound way of kings because that, that bridge four poster oh, yeah. is awesome even if it has moash on it and i'm sorry i'm hijacking a first law thing when we talk about stormlight i'm just so excited about the new stormlight <laughs> book i think everyone is yeah, we're looking at that. That's uh, under two months away now. So I uh, was so looking forward to that. Looking forward to a lot of uh, great books. The, the end of 2020 has uh, been great so far. New Dresden coming next week. I know you've already read that one. I already finished it. Mike, I but, can't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, to jumping into that one. Steven, I have, I have one last question for you. So before you started The Trouble with Peace, you said that a little hatred has been your favorite That's book right. of 2020 so far i want to know if trouble with peace was it better than that. a little hatred i say yes i think slightly yes man it's hard it's like what's more a five star or a five star i don't know i think my first book was i, I thought orso was just like eh, and i didn't really care for Vic, and i felt like he fixed he, he improved on both of those this book so i thought the i thought just the fact that the second book in the in a trilogy was so amazingly like hit it out of the park that's gonna that's gonna bump it up for me so i'm gonna say yeah yeah best book of 2020 so far all right 
Yeah, so November is just nuts. November, December. I think uh, I'm, guys are interested. Ready Player Two comes out that month as well. So it's just yeah, like, a busy yeah. Month. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get my PTO requests in <laughs> right now. All right, th- thanks for listening. Uh, th- thanks again, Mike. Can, really, really can't uh, thank you enough for uh, your endorsement and for, and for your time here. And uh, if you like Phantology and if you like Mike's book reviews, please check us both out on the internet. Uh, we have a lot more content uh, past this. Really, anything in fantasy. Um, maybe between the two of us, we, we've probably covered most of it, at least most of the modern stuff. So, uh, so thanks for listening, and we will see everyone next time. <laughs>